Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Yeah, hello everyone. It's Adam here, and I make the videos for Gameplay Review UK. I guess I do lots of things, but focusing on the videos, at the moment I try to make creative videos using Kerbal Space Program that also help teach people the history and science behind spaceflights. It's kind of it. It's kind of what I'm doing in a nutshell at the moment. And I'm also an editor for Marcus House's videos, which is quite a becoming quite a key role as well. Adam, what would you say is your personal why? You know, that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do. Well, it's hard to say, really. It's like a mix of everything. Um, it's like sharing, sharing knowledge, I guess. I find that I've got quite a lot of knowledge, particularly well, in this, when it comes to spacecraft or the history of rocketry. And so I figure there's lots of people I try and have conversations with, you know, in public, as it were. And they, people don't seem to have um, sort of broad information and knowledge that I would expect people to have in this day and age. So I figure if I, uh, if I motivate myself to make videos, to share the information I have, a wider, a wider group of people can, can also uh, have that information. I'm trying to do it in a fun way too. So uh, it's ex- I keep it, try to keep it exciting, try to make the videos fun and, and engaging. And that just all sort of just adds that extra dimension that keeps everything fun and interesting. Are there any videos, podcasts, print media, or some other such thing that you would recommend to folks that are here listening? Well, I don't want to be lazy and say um, basically anything Marcus House shares, but uh, it's kind of quite parallel because, for example, when I'm making videos with Marcus, we we need to find um, as many sources as we can for, say, for modern, modern space flight, particularly SpaceX. So the more 3D artists... And the more sort of people with a camera who can actually get to sight and take a video, the more of those people we know, the better. And it's got to a stage where we find those people, we, we say, can we use your material? And they say, please use it as much as you can, share it as much as you can. And so it's like quite a long list. Um, on Marcus's uh, live chats like we did yesterday, we've got that long list of people. So anything, anything Marcus lists, definitely I'd recommend going to. And uh for myself, it's quite hard to be specific because I like lots of um, I like lots of smaller YouTubers who I've noticed. Like, um, is it, I think it's called Parallax Nick. I'm not so good. You know me, Ryan. I'm better with the visuals, not so good with the words. But we've got Parallax Nick. I think's his name. He makes some really good videos. And what I want, what I'm doing on my Discord, when someone in my community posts a video, it automatically gets shared. And I'm thinking about making a list of uh, videos like that automatically gets shared that I like because people see what we like as a community, but there's not something where I specifically trying to push, which isn't really KSP specific. So um, like just sort of general things people normally know, like on YouTube, you've got Isaac Arthur and all these sort of people. There needs to be like a dedicated list. So whenever those guys produce a video, people just get notified. So uh, yeah, it's hard to say where, where I would go because we're still building the places to make it easy for people to access their info. But um, that's, what I, that's what I'd be doing, keeping tabs on any playlists and things like that. And the other thing I would say is people that make music, that's for free. So it's good to keep tabs on musicians who are making music and putting it on the internet for people to use for free. So there's lots of playlists for that too. So I guess Savak would be a good example. Miguel Johnson, those guys, every, all the music they do is free. 
you can just and you can use it however you like and all you need to do is just do a link saying these guys made this music and it's all for free so that's the sort of that's the main things i keep tabs on so free creative commons music on youtube and then anyone on youtube who was uh producing anything to do related to space science basically between the work as an editor that you mentioned and your work on your own channel you've gotten to a point where you're essentially a professional producer of creative content for youtube could you talk a bit about the path that got you to this point well really there's like two there's two main turning points i guess that got me to where i am in that regards the first one is I used to make lots of maps on games. So like we've got Rollercoaster Tycoon. I'd make a big map on Rollercoaster Tycoon. Sometimes it'd take me a couple of months of doing nothing but working on a map. And then occasionally I'd load the map up and I'd, I'd show my friends and we'd explore it, you know, and have, you know, have not necessarily play the game anymore, but just look back on the stuff we'd done. But then one of my hard drives blew and I realized I had all of my saves, all of my Rollercoaster Tycoon saves. And it was like years and years of like, not real work. It was more, it was just a hobby. Like, but it'd be like if uh, you build a model train set, say, and then suddenly it just, it just got it set ablaze and it, it was no longer there, you know. But I figured, well, what was I, what were we gaining when we kept reloading it? We weren't playing the game anymore. We were just looking at stuff we'd done. So I thought if, whenever I do something like that, or if, you know, if I do something like and have the time to afterwards, record a few li- a little video of the end results and just upload it to YouTube. So the first step was guess getting a YouTube, um, creating a YouTube account, but not doing it because I wanted a YouTube account. It was because I wanted somewhere to store my videos of stuff that I'd done. So I, I couldn't save it on the computer, of course, my own one, because the whole point was if a hard drive blew, I couldn't watch those videos or play those games again. So I wanted to have somewhere else those videos would be so I could come back and look at them wherever I was, whenever I wanted. So obviously YouTube's a perfect example. And then the next turning point, I guess, was Kerbal Space Program itself, because I've always liked astrophysics, planetary science, and the rest of it. And I thought, well, this game's perfect, because it's just a... Well, actually, one of your questions, later questions, I think, leads into this, doesn't it, Ryan? But uh, a Kerbal Space Program is good because it's a game, but because it is using real physics and relatable parts, you can use it to create quite realistic spacecraft so when that game came along I was like well I love this game I'll do a few videos of this and it was just like a snowball effect to do one video someone's like hey you could do this as well or I'd love it if you did this too and you think yeah I've got I can try that and you know before you know it there's 10,000 people click subscribe and you got crazy ass emotions on your t-shirt your mention of uh, of KS, of KSB curl space program is a good way for us to kind of switch to our main topic here for sure. this episode and to that end, let's let's go back and start with why again, like we did with yeah. your personal why. But this time, what I wonder is, what's your why for the gameplay review UK channel? Well, it, it was originally, like I said, it was it was for me really. So if I wanted to archive something I'd done in the past, but it certainly is not that anymore. It's now kind of a, a force to help share information about history and engineering, uh, so people can learn. But doing it in a way that's fun, because I've always believed if someone gives me a book and I read the book and someone asks, gives me a test on, you know, the information in that book, I'm going to forget most of it because I've just got I've just read A to B and it's done. Whereas if you're in a computer game and they say you have to you have to do this right now, you either do it successfully or you do it wrong and you die and you have to restart. So it's giving you this feedback loop of whether here's the information and did you understand it? And obviously, uh, 
when you're watching the video, you're not playing the game yourself. The game itself is giving you that best experience and it's giving you the best information. But if you can condense that information, sometimes you have the opposite effect because sometimes to learn, you might have to play the game for a three days straight just to recreate one realistic mission, say. But if you can condense that three days worth of info into a video and stick it on YouTube, then you've, and thousands of people watch that video, each of those thousands of people are getting thousands of hours worth of information plugged into them within just a couple of minutes. So it's like a, a compounding effect, hopefully, of knowledge that's being spread. As you mentioned before, a significant part of your content makes use of a game called Kerbal Space Program, or a KSP is the acronym, to generate yeah. footage for use. For folks that maybe haven't heard of the title, haven't engaged with it themselves, could you tell us a bit about what that game's all about? Well, originally it was just, the, the, the simplest terms, it was just a way to understand orbital mechanics. And it wasn't even, I don't think it was 3D, I think it was 2D. And it was very similar to an even older game. I can't remember what it's called. I think it was just called Orbiter. So you'd have, you'd have, uh, you'd have little, some, but unlike the original games, we just had a, like a lem, a little picture of the lunar module, and then it had, you know, you just told it where to go. With Kerbal, you had a couple of, a couple of fuel tanks, a couple of rocket parts, and a, you had to add a computer to control it. So you had to assemble it. But this is still very simple. We're talking like a, a cylinder, or even just a, a rectangle that's representing a cylinder with, you know, a little effect at the bottom to cause the exhaust. And then you can see how you can gain altitude and gain uh, horizontal velocity to try and get into orbit of the circle, right? But people liked it so much, and the guy who was developing it kept adding and adding to it. And it's ended up as a place where you can do full-blown 3D simulations of pretty much any analog of any any sort of uh, any mission that's gone into space you can think of, really. It's almost like the community tries its hardest to push itself to where we can find a craft that is un, un, that's unmakeable but there's always there always seems to be a way to uh to make them to some an analog to some extent so it's a uh, yeah it's very good and i think at this stage it is even to a point where there's even a essentially a simulated solar system for one to go explore yeah so yeah so it would have started with just like just a circle and then it's ended up with it's got its own its own solar system called uh I guess it's the uh, the Kerbal system, but with an, with an O at the end. Kerbal is the star, and Kerbin is the Earth-like planet that's uh, that's going around it. But they've added a few more planets closer to the star and a few further out, and they've even added asteroids, comets, and all sorts to the game now. So, for example, one of the reasons they added asteroids is because they're trying to push uh, concepts about where asteroid retrieval. And obviously, in real life, if NASA want to retrieve an asteroid, that's a lot of time and effort and energy into doing so. But if they can make a computer game and a million people are playing it and they're all trying their own methods to try to either, maybe they want to grab an asteroid, maybe they just want to visit one and mine from it, maybe they want to move its orbits, like say an asteroid could be heading towards the planet right now. And we wouldn't know how to fix it. But if you had a million people all trying to fix it at home on the computer with a quick simulation, and then say you've got the 10 best examples, you might actually have uh, the foundation there to deflect an asteroid better than just letting NASA do it on their own, you know? The uh, potential's vast too, because it's a, simic, a physics emulator. Um, it's not perfect, of course. It's extremely watered down and simple, but you can do things like, you don't have to build spacecraft. You could build a car, you could build a train. You, you know, you could try and build anything really that has physics. But obviously the game is lends towards making spacecraft is the best way to go, really. So that's what it focuses on. Something that's neat about what you do is how you're able to create rather accurate replicas 
showcase different craft for different eras in your videos. I think this is something you were alluding to a bit in one of your earlier answers. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your process for trying to create uh, a recreation of one of those craft? It's hard to say really, because it, it became more and more sophisticated over the years. Originally, it would all be from my memory. So the first sort of wave you could say of videos, I just thought I'm playing Kerbal Space Program. What's, what's, it's like a sandbox. So what are, the, what are the goals here? What am I actually doing? And I thought, well, why don't I try and copy some of the things that happen in real life? And then, so that that's, I don't have to get bogged down with trying to make up a mission. I'll find a mission that already happened and try to make an analog and that I'll learn what happened in the mission. I'll learn the history and plus successfully achieve it, which means that I've got the knowledge base behind um, like I say, if you do something like that, you're going to remember it. If you just read the book, you forget it. But if you research something, build build a replica, go through the whole process of the mission, you, you pretty much remember it. At the time, I would, I would consider myself a, a space buff because no one I knew knew more about space than me because it wasn't like the internet and everyone you know is on the internet now. Most of the people you knew, you'd met around town or whatever at school. And no one really knew about space. I'm like, well, I know, I know more about space than most people I know. So I'll just do it all from memory. And I did it all from memory and looked back and I thought, hold on a minute. If I look at now, if I, now if afterwards, I look at a picture or a photograph of the probe. I was like, that was a nice video. I'll look at a photograph now. And I started to think to myself, shouldn't I really be looking at the photographs first and not doing it from memory and trying to make it good? Because every time I do a craft, I look at something and think, nah, that wasn't actually that accurate or that wasn't that great. Really could have been better. So I think, well, next time I do one, I need to get the photograph first. I need to get a 3D model. There's loads of information I don't know that exists. So research it first, you know, obviously. Because before it was for fun, it was for art. It was just me messing around. But it turned into like more of a mission. I noticed there was gaps. For example, if you Googled first uh, animal in space, and it quite often says like the dog's the first animal in space, she's not she's the first animal in orbit. So even just simple search terms on Google weren't correct. Uh, if you go to research lots of old rockets, like pre-Apollo especially, you're not getting the information. You're getting a black and white, a grainy black and white image, which was digitized in the 90s that was taken in the 60s. And, you know, there's the information's not there. So if you can recreate that in a computer game or any simulation for that matter, history is being brought to life in a way that, it's not like the Second World War. We've got millions of hours of video of the Second World War, and we can then make a game on top of it. It's, it's almost too much information. Whereas with lots of old rockets, especially, you've got one grainy, grainy picture and a random, uh, something random someone said in the past, and you've got to convert it into a rocket. And that in itself became a massive challenge. Um, I'm pretty proud of that too, because you've got examples like Mars 3, uh, which is a spacecraft, which is really hard to get the whole all the information about that spacecraft. You've got one tiny grainy video of how part of the lander works. You've got, you know how the Proton rocket launched and worked, but there's no actual real footage that's connecting that craft with the rocket. So you have to kind of, there's lots of, lots of colds you have to fill in as it were. That's got to fill in lots of colds yourself. And, uh, but when you get to the end result and you realize what you've made is, it's pretty much as close to the best, the best you could have done with the time you've got and the information you've got. It's pretty satisfying. It's pretty, uh, it feels very worthwhile. Something that also sticks out to me is the way that you managed to weave historical footage in together with game footage from KSB in order to tell a story about you know, some sort of historical event. Can you talk a bit about the way you go about doing that and how that impacts the, the way you're trying to tell a story? There's loads of, uh, loads of ways to uh, you have to start worrying about that. There's all the obvious, obvious stuff I won't go into. Like you have to make sure it's copyright using stuff that's not copyrighted. If say we were going to make a video now, 
A rule of thumb would be anything by NASA is not really copyrighted. Occasionally, like NASA might hire a photographer that does something which is not directly through NASA and it makes it more complicated and all this. But nine times out of 10, if you're looking at an old NASA documentary, you can, you can use some clips from it as long as you're not just stealing the video. It's your video, it's, it's, it's revolves around your craft or your creation, but you're also adding some bits NASA also did for support. Um, now, generally the flow of the video almost is dictated by the music. So I'll get the music and the music and the tone and almost score the video. Um, I think it's kind of good because I think it keeps my videos short. I could probably do like four, like my hour long video, which I really like. I would, that's what I'd want to do the most. But uh, not many people even have the time or they didn't quite get it and stuff like that. I'm, I do it, you know, you see my hour long special, Ryan, it's good, but it's a bit arty farty, you could say. You're not necessarily, you might not necessarily get it first time. So if you let the music dictate the actual video, and then not, if you try and find ones that are about six minutes long, or if you want to make a longer video, you, you get a six minute long video, splice it in half and mix it so it sounds like a continuous song. And then you just kind of let the actual, you let the, let the music take over as it were but just keep in the back of your head what you want the story to be so Apollo Soyuz is probably the first good example of of it because before Apollo Soyuz the clips were very minimal like if I sent a spacecraft into space that I'd made but I wanted to show the actual photograph it took I'm not going to make a pretend photograph this is the photograph it took to go with it this is you know here's the spacecraft plus this is the actual photograph how cool was that but people were like no we want more we want more and I'm like yeah it's supposed to be original content but I'm thinking if I do properly splice and mix and rehash as much content as I can it is it really becomes original content and transformative right so we're doing that sort of stuff and Apollo Soyuz again is a good example because before Apollo Soyuz most of the craft I did I did because I really liked them and just the history was just added on top because I thought that's just you know nice information for people to have too but Apollo Soyuz is the opposite because all the hardware they're using apart from the the adapter that uh, so they can connect the two different spacecraft together it's all basically old stuff it's just an apollo an older you could call it an old apollo and an old saturn 1b and an old soyuz basically docking that's all it is it's just two spacecraft launched and docked and as far as big milestones and stuff is concerned as far as new different hardware which is what i like to focus on is there was not, none of it there but the history of the actual launch itself is, is the first mission to me where it's more gripping than the actual hardware itself because you've got these two enemies that have been, that have been competing with each other for ages. And instead of trying to blow each other up, they're like, wait, we should join forces and make a space station. Because ultimately it led to the creation of the International Space Station. It was like the foundation for, for those because it was docking the Russian and the American spacecraft leading to the docking of full-blown modules. Plus, plus the actual guys that went up there. Normally, even though the astronauts obviously are amazing, I always put them second because to me it was, was more about the engineering and the physics. Like Neil Armstrong's awesome, but it, it could have been anyone in that capsule. It was the actual capsule itself I was trying to, you know, focus on more. You see, so it didn't didn't that didn't necessarily matter. But when you get to Apollo Soyuz and you realise some of the guys on the mission, like Alexei Leonov, who was uh, a Russian, he did the first spacewalk, you know, all these first guy to draw a picture in space and just all these crazy things. And the, the amount of, the amount of like legacy that all of those people had together, plus the people that made the craft. Um, and then the effect it's led on us and the effect it led on me to make that video and everything all came together into like one, one big video. So that was, uh, that was probably the best way to put it all together. And you made mention of that, that longer feature that you that you had done uh could you talk a bit about that like uh what is it that you like about how that came together 
uh, versus uh, some of your other content. I liked that one because it was the first time where I used the kind of the skills that I'd that I'd, uh, that I'd learned and all of the resources I could pull to make an, a video that I wanted to see for the first time in a while. First, I was making videos I wanted to see, but they were they were rushed or they were just oh look at this thing I did low etc. Whereas it got to the stage where I've been making these videos for over a year, like almost with a professional mindset, but it's almost been too professional. I actually wanted to make these videos because I wanted to see videos that didn't exist, right? So I thought, what do I want to see? I want to see a documentary that's an hour long about the Pioneer Probe. So I want to see an hour long documentary about every probe which has gone further than Mars, right? Because that's, it's a finite amount. It's not like a huge number, but it's not, but it's also, there's a lot going on. There's different probes go to Saturn, different probes go to Jupiter. Uh, we've sent one to Pluto now, etc. There's lots of crazy stuff going on and it deserves, it's each, each one of those spacecrafts deserve its own limelight. And I thought, well, log logically as well, I like to do it chronologically. So as people watch the series, they can see how one thing kind of led to the next and all this sort of stuff. And so, just a logical step is to do Pioneer 10 first. And you'll notice if you want to watch a documentary about Pioneer 10, there's a couple out there, but mostly they don't exist in the sense that most spacecraft, if you Google them, you can you can be watching videos for days. Whereas if you're going to be Googling Pioneer 10, after about three or four videos, you, it's, you're done. It's kind of done with. And some of them are, t are very long for a modern consumer as an audience. So a modern someone in the, the most people nowadays don't want to watch a four hour long video for... 15 really good points and then all of the spiel that goes between but what you can do is get a four hour long video and look for those key moments which can flow in and out of each other and if you cut everything else between you know look they're no longer irrelevant and it feels like its own story but just the main points and then you can mix those into the mix those into the whole story and again they're fragmented so you're watching these four different videos one's about this thing one's about the other thing that's why i want to see it from from launch what it did and then the end of its mission i want to see it all in one coherent flow as it were that's in one like easily digestible format so you've got an hour long because i'll give myself an hour to normally the video runs out when it runs out so either the music runs out or the content runs out i was like well that's that's the video it's done cool whereas this i've got an hour to put in an hour's worth of material so i just filled as much of the the best bits that i thought were the best from lots of old nasa videos then also refilmed all the missions in Kerbal Space Program with the real life solar system mod so it's as realistic as possible and then also um wait what was the third thing I did so we got the got the spacecrafts in there we got the music in there um we got the bit we got the footage in there oh and the last thing I did was say boot up um space engine which is like a 3d uh, just like a 3D interactive planetarium of the whole known universe, basically. So I'd, I'd, if I wanted to enhance a moon for like the game, it's all very simplified. Whereas, um, and also the footage from Pioneer 10 was very old. So I, it's intentionally done. So the audience has only given the information as you would have in real time. So like, we didn't know how many bands of clouds there were on Jupiter before the Pioneer probes and stuff like that. So when they, when you, at the start of the start of the program, you think, we think, Jupiter might have four bands, five bands, six bands. By the end of the, by the end of it, it's kind of like Jupiter has 16, 17 bands, etc. So even though we're in the future as an audience, we're trying to drag you back just to just see so for a moment, so you feel like you're almost put in the shoes of the person just before there was the mission. So the information that they had before, and the information they'd have after, instead of now, like I said, you can look back and you can get all the information straight away if you want it, and there's no 
there's nothing there's no there's nothing to be amazed by you're not anticipating that information because it's there whereas i wanted the i want the that series to be that you feel like you've been you've taken back to before it all happened and how i'm trying to refill what it was like to have experienced uh, dis these discoveries firsthand if you know what i mean we've talked we've been talking a bit about your content and uh it seems like a lot of it kind of straddles that that line of like the educational and the entertaining so yeah. as you're like thinking and talking about that like what do you think makes for good content that that fills that space well it's hard to say because technically my content is quite niche so um i'm i'm happy for what mine is because i know if i did something i liked other people who other people this you know i'm not no one's 100% unique right if you do if there's something you like there's going to be a bunch of other people out there that also like it so if you start just doing things down that starting on that chords you can end up somewhere good um so yeah the main the main thing about content creation is not even even content creation in a way like um it's hard to explain but it's not like i sit down and force myself to make a content it's more like what what am i naturally doing that is content and then how do i convert that into some a way of sharing it on the internet like i didn't say to myself i'm going to make the 2020 rover because it would be really good content i said to myself i really really want to make this 2020 rover how can i make that so it is uh so it is also content so other people can see it, if that makes sense. So if there's something you really like, there's something you're already enjoying, just step back for one second and think to yourself, how could I be sharing what I'm doing right now with others so they can think, oh, I'd really like that too. Or, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's kind of all it, that's kind of all it is, at, the, at its root core. So if you're doing something you like, stop for a second, step back and think, how can I also share this? It's kind of, uh, I kind of, I think that's the main, the main philosophy I've always used for that, really. So I, I was I was thinking about you know you've made a lot of spacecraft uh, recreations at this stage like right. a, a rather large number. So thinking back at that at, at your history of that, what would you say is the most challenging project of that sort that you've come across and why? For me, there's two main challenges. The first challenge is is it technically hard for me to do? So an example of that would be the N1 rocket. Now, the N1 rocket, again, it's a very big rocket. It's got lots of different stages. The information behind it isn't always complete, but I guess it's so, the N1 rocket's so um, so complicated and it never really fully worked uh, in the end. But it's very hard to get a complete information. So just that alone was quite hard. The amount of different websites, and normally it'd be a couple of websites, couple of photographs, you've got the information. A 3D model would be its preferred, right? And say a NASA release a 3D model, it's very easy to turn that 3D model into a Kerbal Space Program uh, craft. But you've got the N1, it hasn't really got any of that stuff, especially not at the time. Remember, most we, I've been doing this for a few years now. So if you look at the internet for 3D models for spacecraft, say five years ago, it's a totally different landscape. Look at it now, you 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 Google a craft, it will pre, it'll pretty much be there. If you did it five years ago, it was a lot trickier necessarily to get all the info you wanted. So it's, you haven't got the info. And then building it itself is complicated. Like lots of uh, lots of rockets are almost easy to make in Kerbal Space Program because it's like, I make this, it's a logical step. I add this part, this happens, I need to add this part. But when you get to the N1 rocket, it's this happens, Oh wait, there's no parts for that. This happens. Oh wait, but the part I have doesn't doesn't want to behave like that. It behaves the opposite way to how this example did in real life. And the amount of workarounds you do and the amount of messing around you do to get everything together 
it's pretty tricky. And half the time, you only got 90% of the information. If you've done everything right, you've still only got 90% of the information. So even you're building it, you're second guessing yourself, you're questioning it. Is this actually right? Because I saw a video of this, but then I saw a photograph of this, but this astronaut said this. And in this newspaper, newspaper article, they were saying this, right? So there's all of this stuff going around in your head the whole time where you're building it. And then the end one's a good example, because as the second challenge in Purple Space Program, which is A, can you build it? But B, can your computer handle it too? So it's quite a few craft I'm making. So the end one's a perfect example where I feel like I could have done, I could have made, even though everyone said it was great, I think it could have been better if I just had a, like an inf infinity PC or, you know, or a PC which like could, uh, a PC and, a, and, and software which would carry on running smoothly. So like it took seven days to make. I think the first three days, it was most of the craft and the rest of the days was finishing the last couple of stages. But every time you'd click the mouse, you'd have to wait five minutes for the part to be added. Get the next part. Oops, I did it wrong. Wait five minutes to undo that part. Wait five minutes to add an etc. Right. So the, the the last bit of the project that should be the quickest takes the longest because by that time your computer's like, "What are you doing to me, man? I wasn't quite the software wasn't quite designed for this. Good luck, mate." So, <laughs> but you can get there. <laughs> the good thing is that if you if you're patient and you are uh, you're very you have a lot of uh, what's the words perseverance, then you will um. You know, you can get there. So yeah, you got so you got a web. What can your computer handle, and what can you handle? I think the third thing you're supposed to do is handle how long it takes. But what I always do is, I want to do this. It doesn't matter how long it takes because think, sometimes thinking like that, it won't get done. If I if someone said to me, you know that rocket you're going to make is going to take you eight days of building before you can even start filming, I'd have been like, let me look at my calendar. Oh, I can't really do that, can I? I can't actually do that. But what I've been doing instead is just doing it. So um. <laughs> Which is why sometimes people don't hear from me for like four or five days. And what have you done in that time? I did one thing. Here you go. I posted it. Was that it? What do you mean? Was that it? You know. So sometimes I feel like I disappear for a long time, and it seems like nothing's happening. And you always want stuff to be happening. Like, so what, what did you do today, Ryan? I woke up. I had a tea. I went to work. I did this. I met Cody. I did this. Did that. Da, 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 da. What did you do to Adam? I added five parts to a craft file. I'd probably add a few more tomorrow. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a long process and that could be quite hard as a human because you want to see stuff happening all the time, you know. Are there any moments in the history of space programs that you think are underappreciated? Oh, definitely. This is the Soviet space dogs, Ryan. Like what I was saying before, if you Google first, I think, I, I think originally I've Googled first animal in space, right? So be clear for anyone listening. Space is basically, if you get above 100 kilometers in altitude, you've got to space, right? But what goes up must come down, and it's true. If you go straight up into space, you'll just follow that ballistic trajectory, and then you'll come straight back down again. Whereas Yuri Gagarin, or like the dog, not only do they get to space, the rocket then continued to accelerate so fast horizontally that they achieved an orbit, so they'd never fall down. They'd be falling down the same as the curve of the Earth falling below them. So they always go around forever, as it were, if there's no drag, et cetera, making it simpler. So if you Google the first animal in space and you see Lyca the dog and you think, well, Lyca the dog, she, went, she was the first animal in space and the first orbit. That's pretty incredible. I mean, Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space and in orbit at the same time. So it foggies it a bit. But Lyca, first animal in orbit, not the first animal in space. First animal in space, actually, a jar of fruit flies. So after the Second World War, the Americans, uh, not including bacteria, so the Americans got some V2s and they took them to White Sands, New Mexico, and fired them up into space to test them. 
after a few, one guy was like, this is the story. One guy is like, if we put a jar of fruit flies in that rocket, they'll be, they would have sent some animals into space and we can see if they if they survive, et cetera. So literally the first animals were just some guy thought put a jar of fruit fly. It was like a last moment thing, put a jar of fruit flies in there. And then they did a few other things at White Sands. Like they sent a few small, small monkeys, primates. I can't think which uh, species they were, but very small ones and little canisters basically. And they were just, they were almost like biological units. They put a little, little uh, Reese's maquettes. Is that what they're called? In a little canister. And it was just like a bar. You could call it a biological piece of equipment they didn't care it was an animal they cared it was biological so they would just put it in the canister fire it out there did it survive did, did, did that life form survive type deal but then when the russians came to getting their rockets underway and they had their they started sending dogs into space it seemed a little bit less clinical and a little bit more like the dogs were like were doggy cosmonauts right so before the dog the soviet dogs came along pretty much anything biological put into space I mean, even other animals, non-dogs, in fact, that the Russians was putting into space were kind of treated like an experiment. Whereas the Soviet space dogs before Laika, and where Laika was one of them, were like, were the first cosmonauts. I really think that's what's kind of understated. Who was the first person in space? Yuri Gagarin. No, it was these dogs like Gypsy and Danzig and all these other dogs, right? It was, they were the first ones into space. It's totally, it's like, it's the, it's the thing which I think everyone should know, which no one knows. I think it's probably safe to say, based on our conversation, that you're somebody that sees space exploration as being an important public good. I know it's essential. Um, There's two types of civilizations. There's ones that go into space and they stop asteroids from colliding with the planet and understand how everything works and they survive. And there's the other type who do what they want hedonistically. Mm -hmm. Uh, They try and rush everything. They get what they can done because it's easy for them and it's convenient they don't think about 10 15 20 generations down the road those civilizations don't exist look around so we don't see any that did that they're all gone so if we don't go into space and we don't take the ball by the horns and understand that we're part of this universe instead of just sort of trying to live in spite of it um so yeah it's crucial it's 100 percent. if it isn't our main focus with i mean the fact that it, because of history and stuff like you we both love a bit of history ryan it's obvious that we've got to the stage where we've got lots of weapons and all of this crazy stuff because of the way history is and I, I think humans have this um potential to convert all of this nonsense that we use from paranoid states back into a, a way in which we can bring our, bring the world back together again and we already can when we go out into the universe it's not going to be as a country it's not going to be as a planet or it's going to be it's not going to be at all right if you send a few countries up there it's just going to be terrible it has to be everyone as a people and i think the the story of how the first rocket, orbital-capable rocket, is perfect um, example of this, because that rocket was only made because some crazy dictators wanted the potential to nuke people from any part of the planet at will. But the rocket scientist, uh, Sergei Korolev, who created it, didn't want that. He only wanted to make a rocket that could put a person into space for exploration and, you know, for mankind not to blow people up. But he thought, I say he thought, it's a lot more complicated than this. This is, I make, I'm kind of making the story up, but I guess it's to make the point. He thought, well, I'm the only man in the world that can make this rocket. They, uh, I'm going to tell them this is what it takes to nuke people. But instead, I'm going to make the rocket that actually puts people into, into space and swap the spacecraft with a nuclear weapon. And when the government says, that's a great little device you've got there that we wanted, perfect. Because it wouldn't have been made if it was to send a man into space, but it would have been made if the government wanted to blow people up. And at the very last minute, when that rocket was built and assembled and had a production line, all he did was swap the nuclear payload for a spacecraft, which was his plan all along. 
So it's kind of how I feel about humans going into space. We've made a few mistakes in the past, but I think we can convert all of the technologies that have come out of these mistakes into things which are really will benefit everyone, like the jet engine, for example. I mean, we can argue about the fuels, but the, thanks to the Second World War pumping up something like the jet engine, people have, if they want to, the ability to fly anywhere on the planet in the day, right? So it's trying to convert these, these sort of, turn things into happy accidents, I guess I could say. So it's crucial that we convert all of this technology that doesn't help us into technology that does. And it's crucial that we not necessarily have to break down all the borders of the world and have no countries, but the force that goes into space needs to be a planetary force where we all, where everyone, everyone feels like they're doing it together. It's not America did this, Russia did that. We did, we went to the moon. And you know that it's, we're, naturally we do that because when we did go to the moon, it was for, oh yeah, America's winning, America's doing this, NASA's doing this. But when they finally got to the moon, like with Apollo 8, from Apollo 8 onwards, it was very much hold on a minute. This is more than just a country sending its its pilots to the moon. It was about it was for all mankind, right? Adam, as we as we get to the to the tail end of our conversation here, a, a tradition on our program is to allow the guests some space to tell us like what sort of thoughts they'd like us to leave this conversation thinking about. So, Adam, for you and this conversation we had today, what do you think those concluding thoughts are? I guess what we could take away from this at the this, in our current climate, because I haven't heard anyone use the phrase current climate for ages, missing that phrase current climate. With 2020 and 2021 being here, the world seems like a new scary place. But I would argue it's not. I'd argue it's potentially much better. But anyone who's trying to uh, move backwards and try and live how we were living before these, before the new normal, I think they're going to be disappointed. I think what we need to do is start looking more into the future and planning more ahead and bring people together. And always remember, you always have a choice in what you can do. And I learned, it took me years to learn this. So I could have played the computer games and never shared them. But I thought I'd take that extra bit of time and the extra bit of effort to share them, right? And it wasn't much extra effort. It's just a few extra steps, you could say. And instead of being someone that plays computer games in their bedroom on their own, who no one's heard of and has no friends. It's like, I feel like I'm the center of my whole whole community just because I shared a few extra videos and just tried to include people with what I'm doing. So always include people. And if you have the option of saying something, I know it sounds silly, Ryan, but if you have the option of saying something nice or saying something horrible, just say something nice. Because the problem I had a lot when I was younger was I liked to play pranks on people and stuff. And I wouldn't think if it wasn't nice or not, I'd think, is it funny? And is it not too bad? They'll go, oh, Adam, that wasn't very nice, but oh, that was funny. But I could have spent that time doing something nice instead. And if I'd have had the choice and have thought about it, I would have done something nice every time. You know, try and include people and bring, pull people together. If someone's your enemy, it's just because you've had miscommunication. It's because you haven't had time to work things out at all. And having a community shows that because the amount of people in the Kerbal Space Program community that are opposite poles and have total opposite opinions, and you could even argue hate each other, something about the community pulls them back together. So yeah, every, give everyone a second chance, and you never know where uh, you never know what people are capable of. You really, you never do. You really never know what people are capable of. Everyone's there to help. You just don't know it. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us here on Civic Tech Chat. I think we've jumped into a a pretty interesting topic here that folks listening are going to get a lot out of. 
You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat, visit us on the web at civictech.chat, or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.